Hi, this is the Kate Languages podcast and today I'm going to be doing my first ever Q&A episode. Um, so I put a call out on social media for people to ask me anything um, related to my own work and teaching and learning in general, things like that. Um, and I've got some really great questions from people. So I've got five questions um, that I'm going to try and answer and hopefully will be useful not only to the people who ask me those questions um, but to anybody listening. So some of them are quite MFL specific. Um, So question one and two and three. I'm just having having a look at what questions I've got. So my first three questions are quite uh, MFL specific. Um, Although Questions two and three could be related to other uh, subjects, particularly optional subjects. You'll see what I mean when you hear the questions. Um, Question four is quite a personal question um, about my time as a teacher. But again, I think it's probably very relevant uh, for lots of people. And question five, uh, I'm going to try my hardest to answer, um, even though I'm not sure I'm an expert, but I'll, uh, I'll give it a go. (laughs) so cryptic right so question number one um that I was asked is are you teaching your toddler any of your additional languages so this is a brilliant question and one that um yeah so I have a toddler who at the time of recording is nearly two um and he is very very chatty um he's yeah he's pretty good (laughs) He knows like all the words now, um, and yeah, is kind of having little conversations and putting little sentences together and stuff um, in English. And I'm in quite a lucky position that my husband also speaks French and Spanish. He studied French; he's English, but he studied French and Spanish at university as well. Um, so <laughs> I say I'm in a lucky position. We're almost we've almost got the problem that we don't we've talked about this quite a lot like we don't know which other language to focus on with our kid so um my mum and stepdad spend half their time in well when it's not covid they spend half the time in spain i kind of go backwards and forwards um as much as they can between here and spain and my sister lives in arizona so there's a lot of spanish there So we think probably like on a practical level, um, it would be really great for him to learn Spanish and to be able to speak Spanish. Um, And we've already taken him to Spain twice, um, which is insanely lucky considering it's been COVID. But we went to my parents once and managed a random little week in Lanzarote. Um, And even there, so when, when we're at my parents, I don't he wasn't really saying much um but yeah when we were in Lanzarote we did start kind of te- trying to teach him how to say adios to people which was really cute and uh yeah I have to say the staff in the hotel which thought that was really sweet and um really loved that um and then yeah now and then I'll like like the other day we were doing counting in different languages and he managed uno dos tres um but then, it's, I mean, it's really hard to be consistent with a toddler unless you're actually bilingual and you're, you know, one of you is speaking one language and one of you speaking the other language, um, which we don't do because we speak English at home, obviously. You know, we are both English native speakers. So we, um, 
Yeah, so we've kind of had this discussion of like what we, you know, what languages to focus on, whether to just do one, um, whether to do little bits of different languages. Um, I would really love him to be able to speak German because that's my ancestral language, is that a thing? So my mum's parents were both German. Um, my mum's bilingual German and English, so I would, yeah, like not many of my generation, because so my mum's, oh my god, I'm giving you like my entire family history. Anyway, I speak German, obviously. I would really love him to be able to speak German. Um, but my husband doesn't speak German, so I don't know. That almost feels, well, that could be a good opportunity for him to learn. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think probably what I'm going to do, and this is what, so even though my mum's bilingual, I didn't grow up speaking German. I, I heard it around me. We went to Germany a lot when I was a kid. I knew that it was a thing that my mum did, like just spoke German um, with my grandmother in particular sometimes, especially when she didn't want me and my sister to understand what they were talking about. <laughs> That's a good incentive to learn a language, by the way, when, you, when you're a child. Um, so, yeah, I think probably what we're going to do is just make sure we can, you know, as and when um, <laughs> restrictions allow, which I'm hoping now, this is February 2022, I'm really hoping that it's just going to remain fairly open now and okay, that we are going to be going to play, you know, France, Spain, Germany, um, I mean, possibly even Mexico, I don't know, places um, where the languages are spoken. So he just has that opportunity to hear other languages and to be able to speak them. Um, and then I guess just see what happens at school. So hopefully that's a, an interesting answer for people. I think when you're like I say, when one of you speaks one language and the other speaks another language and you can be completely bilingual at home, I think it's almost slightly easier decision. But when you live in a multilingual household, but actually we are both English and we both speak English together, um, then it, it is a much harder um, decision, actually, weirdly. So, yeah. Um, but we've got, so we've got like children's books in other languages. Um which we kind of look at occasionally, although some I do confess that I, so we've got like, où est spot mon petit chien? Um, I tend to just go, where's spot? And then start reading, you know, because um, he loves he loves a preposition. So he's learning like under and on and in and things like that. So, um, but yeah, I think as time goes on, I'll probably do those in different languages. But he knows, he knows when we're speaking another language and he just looks at you and laughs like, mm that's weird that sounds really weird so anyway yeah I'd be really interested to know if anyone's listening to this who's in a similar situation like what they've done and what they're what they're doing um with their kids in terms of learning foreign languages um okay so that was the first question second and third question kind of fit together a little bit so I'm going to say what both the questions were and I'll address I'll address each one separately but I when I was thinking of answers to these questions, I thought these actually go together. Um, and these are much more kind of, so these are MFL specific and school specific. But as I said in the intro, I think they can be related to um, optional subjects in particular. Um, okay, so the first one was, do I have any ideas to improve year nine uptake to GCSE? So 
how to get more kids in year nine choosing languages as an option for GCSE. Um, and then question three is, this is quite a sensitive one, but I mean, I've definitely come across this. How do you deal with SLT or other staff not valuing MFL? Like, it makes me sad even just reading that question because I'm sure anyone who's listening to this who's an MFL teacher has come across this. Um, but again, like, like I was saying, I think this, this can be relevant for other optional subjects as well. Um, I think there are a lot of subjects that feel undervalued by either other staff members or SLT or head teachers or whatever. So if I'm just going to look specifically first at question number two, so option, so the option when GCSE is an option, how do you get more year nine kids to choose languages GCSEs um, as an option? Oh wow, yeah. So the schools I've worked in where it's it's most successful is basically where it is the the default choice so it's not and see this relates to SLT doesn't it like this relates to leadership like if they're not willing to do that then it's so tough so so what I mean by the default option is that it's kind of assumed that you do a language as GCSE so it's not 100% compulsory and there will be kids who they almost kind of have to opt out of the languages GCSE and they have to choose a slightly different pathway um, and almost have a reason why they're not going to do the languages GCSE um, but basically um, like I say that the schools that I've worked in where it has been where they've had the biggest um, take-up from year nine into GCSE are where it's almost kind of not an option it's just you know what you do but like I say you're not 100% compulsory I think so this like I was saying relies a lot on support from SLT it relies a lot on the school culture it relies a lot on so one particular school I'm thinking was heavily oversubscribed and it was almost the attitude of like look this is what we do. If you don't like it, there are plenty of other schools you can go to and there are plenty of people who want your place in the school. Um, not every school has that luxury. I'm totally aware of that. Um, but yeah, so that's probably not a helpful answer if you're in a school where, as the third question the person asked me, where SLT and other staff under, don't really value MFL. Um, I think... I think probably both of these, the, the ideas I'm going to give now can answer both of those questions. Um, so can you, oh, it's about making languages seem like like the best option, like the thing that you really, really need um, to then take your studies further. Um, so, I mean, I've, I worked as a G&T GNT, not for unfortunately, it had nothing to do with gin and tonic, gifted and talented coordinator um, for a couple of years. And I think one of the things that we looked at, especially with the, you know, the, the gifted and talented, like higher ability, whatever you like to call them, um, students was the fact that um, Russell Group universities, for example, um, tend to look favourably on people who've got language GCSEs. Um, that was, I don't know if that's still the case, I'm talking like six, 
years ago um, now. But, you know, you're if you're going to university, and I know I'm, I'm talking about like state school kids, because I think in private schools, they tend to be pretty compulsory. So if you're in a state school and you're thinking about going to university and you're competing with private school kids who have done one or two languages GCSEs, probably done some Latin um, and other things like that, like if you've got a language GCSE, you're getting yourself up on the level with them. Now, again, it depends on your kids. If you're in a school where the vast majority of kids don't have that aspiration to go to university, that's not going to work. But you need to know your kids and you need to know, like, what is it that's going to make them think like, oh, yeah, I it will be useful in my life to be able, you know, if I do a French or German or Spanish or Italian or whatever you offer at your school, um, GCSE. So, yeah, it's looking at your kids and, and thinking what will yeah what what will kind of uh inspire them to want to do languages GCSE um and I'm fully aware as a British person uh that it, it that is really really difficult and I do think post-Brexit um I don't want to get political but I do think post-Brexit it's worse it's much harder much 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 harder um <clears throat> I mean I don't know whether you offer trips whether there are like trips that you do for key stage four that you can only do for doing the GCSE and that could be an incentive again it depends on your kids though because some of them are just like well, I've got no like I've got no desire to go to Germany I don't care um I have to say when I was at school we had a German exchange that was just so much fun it was just brilliant and I went from year 10 right through to year 13 um and I stayed I had two different pen friends actually and I but the first year I stayed with one and then uh, year 11 12 and 13 I stayed with the same family as well so I kind of got to know them quite well and we oh my god we had so much fun um it was just brilliant uh so that was a real incentive like we loved the the, the exchange it was uh, yeah. and again I'm talking about the 90s and this I know people don't go on exchanges anymore and I know I think the kind of schools where people are struggling the most to get kids to do languages GCSEs are the kinds of schools where kids probably can't afford to go on trips um, and have no aspirations to go to uh, Germany or France or maybe Spain's a bit different. I think it's probably easier to, you know, get them interested in, in a holiday in Spain. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that is one thing. Can you feasibly work out, like, is there a trip that you can offer key stage four that you can only do if you're doing, doing the GCSE? Um and then looking at your key stage three curriculum. So I have done a whole podcast episode on designing a, a curriculum, which I have focused on key stage three. Um, and some of the things I, I was looking at that is making it challenging, but not too difficult. So, oh, it, yeah, it, it's a balance. Um, but, yeah, making making the curriculum interesting, relevant, challenging, um, making them feel like they're really achieving something great. Something I did a lot, um, especially with like <clears throat> slightly higher ability kids, but even, I mean, we, we, we taught mixed groups and we basically taught form groups um, in my last school. And um, yeah, so, so, you know, completely mixed. I did a lot of GCSE work in Key Stage 3, in Year 9 in particular, um, including getting them to do like foundation papers. Now, this was pre, well, I can't remember when the new GCSE came in, whatever, the pre, so, oh God, the current GCSE was what, 
uh, first examining 2018. So this is before then, which was the old GCSE. Um, and I have to say, like, the foundation reading and listening papers were a lot easier than the current one. But then there's no reason, like, why why you shouldn't do, you know, 2012 listening with them as a year nine end of end of unit exam and just you know just see how how they do on that and then show them what the grey boundaries were okay I mean I know okay it's changed and it is a lot harder um but look at the kind of grey boundaries and show them like you're already at a grade four um you know and you can do this that and the other and to make them feel like GCSE is something that they can achieve I think there's a lot of talk around how difficult languages GCSEs are which they are and we all know the grading is really unfair um but yeah the so getting them thinking in year nine and you've got to start this at the beginning of year nine while they're thinking about their options if you're trying to do this in now basically what so we're like end of January spring term they're probably already decided what they want to do um it might be a bit late but you know September or end of year eight even end of year eight September year nine looking at GCSE stuff and again I've got another podcast episode on doing GCSE style activities key stage three um obviously something I believe <laughs> believe in quite strongly um but yeah and I think that can really motivate them as well to think oh yeah this is something that I can actually achieve and something I can actually do and it will look good on my CV that I've got this language GCSE um and yeah trying trying to incorporate culture as much as possible so showing them that languages is, a, is an actual living breathing thing it's not just some kind of random abstract idea so that's why I'm saying trips are amazing um but showing them culture so music and films and um incorporating that into their um into your schemes of work um not just add-ons that like oh it's the end of term I'm too tired I'm just going to show them the film like actually incorporating it into your programs of learning um so that it is a really integral important part of what they're doing um and I think so what I've talked about here is the kind of the motivation for the kids so you've got the extrinsic motivation as in like if you do GCSE you can go on a trip which might work might not work but I think the intrinsic motivation is much much more important so that they're getting a sense of achievement and that they're really enjoying it okay I'm fully aware because I have taught in lots of different schools and I'm going to talk about those because that's one of my questions in a bit I know I've taught a lot of kids who are not motivated at all um then I mean it depends on your numbers then you've got to ask yourself if it's not compulsory and if you're not getting a lot of support do you really so what is your ideal situation do you really want loads and loads of kids doing GCSE who aren't really that bothered or do you want nice small groups who actually really want to do it and I mean that's kind of the dream isn't it like actually teaching people who really want to do it um, so maybe that's a question to, to ask yourself as well. The only problem is, obviously, if you're not getting enough to even make one class. And this, again, goes back to SLT, um, not valuing MFL and not being supportive. Um, B 
Because if they're saying, like, if you've only got 15 kids, for example, who've opted to do German, they ref- they're going to refuse to run um, a class, then that's the issue of SLT not being supportive rather than your problem with not being able to get more kids to do GCSE. We've, I mean, I remember more with A-level really having this discussion um, in, you know, in that some schools will say, oh, well, you can only run an A-level 10 in a group. And it's like, I think once in my life I've ever experienced 10 in an A-level languages group. Like it just rarely, rarely happens. And I'm even talking schools where it was compulsory at GCSE. Um, and yeah, you you rarely, rarely get um, a situation where, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've taught two, three, four, and that needs a lot of support from SLT. It really, really does, because they need to say it is worth paying these hours, these staff, these hours to teach such a small group. Um, so yeah so so then yeah the third question was how do you deal with deal with SLT and other staff not valuing MFL and like I say I mean it just makes me sad even thinking about this because it's so prevalent um, one thing I thought about when I was asked this question and I was trying to think of some ideas to answer it um, I think in some respects you need to be this might sound a bit hippie-ish I don't know be slightly compassionate about where this is coming from for a lot of british people languages so people speaking foreign languages is so far out of their comfort zone that they could be approaching this from a place of deep insecurity okay and i hope that doesn't sound patronizing but i come across i mean you know most languages teachers i'm sure come across this all the time when you tell people that you teach foreign languages people's response is usually oh I was terrible at French at school oh I did did Spanish GCC but I can't remember a word and you know you you get this response all the time and people you know teachers are no different so if it's coming from a, a place of insecurity then to have some compassion and to work out, and I think this is more relevant to heads of department, languages departments, how you can make, I know, I mean, it seems ridiculous, like they're adults, but whatever, how you can make them feel less insecure, and how you can make them, as I was just talking about with with your year eight, year nines, how you can make them understand the joy of learning another language and learning about another culture. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to think of, of some ideas of this and this is not things that I've done, but is it possible to offer staff language lessons to do a, you know, a languages Spanish club? Because people always want to learn Spanish because they always want to go to Spain on holiday. So, you know, working with staff and showing them that it's really quite fun and it's a, a really useful thing to do. And yeah, okay, that's going to probably be after school. And it's going to be extra work for you in your own time. Um, but it could help with building those relationships to show um, other staff that, you know, languages is fun. Like show them all the fun games that you play and all that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, also inviting them in to observe your lessons to see what's going on in your lessons not formal observations but just to show like 
we're doing some really good stuff here. Like it's really interesting. The kids are really engaged. Pick a class that that is engaged, obviously. Some cute little year sevens or something. Um, things like that. Another thing that I think is really is a really good tool is assemblies. Um, myself and a colleague um, in my previous school did. Um, well, I thought an interesting assembly the kind of, about like where languages can take you. Um, and we had both. So I worked in Indonesia and she'd worked in China teaching English. And um, we'd obviously based on a year abroad um, in France and Germany, and we'd, you know, I've also lived in Switzerland and Spain, very, you know, various places, and we kind of showed, like, with the languages, with languages behind you, that you can go and do these things, and, okay, I don't speak Indonesian, but I felt a lot more confident going to Indonesia, and knowing that I was going to pick up some of the language, because I knew how to learn a language, so making, making your presence known around the school and showing, you know, in assemblies and things like that, that you, you know, that you're an important part of the school and that languages are a really, really essential element of the children's education. Um, and another idea I, I had was um, whole school language day. So I don't really know, I don't know, this <laughs> is a little like note I've scribbled. Um, obviously, European Day languages is a really good one for that in September um and yeah just generally um making languages more relevant across the school I know quite a lot of schools have um labels around the school so like the you know the canteen they'll have it in French German Spanish Italian Chinese I don't know whatever languages you're offering um or even you know more and they'll have a big welcome sign in lots of different languages and um yeah just sort of seeing whether you can get that kind of thing included in the school so that whenever people are walking around the school, they're thinking, oh, yeah, languages, that's a part of what we do. That's a part of the education. Um, but, yeah, I've got to say, I it, it's so it's really, really hard. Um, and I don't know if the person who asked me this is a German specialist, but I think we're getting it a lot <laughs> a lot harder for German specialists these days and I know that with my online courses for languages teachers the Spanish ones are flourishing and the French ones are pretty popular and the German ones I'm delighted at the moment I've got two classes um, but there are two people in one class and three in the other um, you know which for me I'm just like yay German but I mean yeah it, there doesn't seem to be much support for German I'm not really sure why because it's very it's a great language and it's very useful but I think, yeah, a lot of SLT are, are just looking at GCSEs and thinking, right, what can we scrap? What can we focus on? And looking at, you know, focusing just on Spanish or whatever. Um, but yeah, so as I said, that these questions are, are relevant. I mean, I talk about them from an MFL specific standpoint because that's my expertise. That's what I know. But I can see for a lot of other optional subjects, especially like the arts and drama and music and things like that, like they're equally struggling um, to A, get the kids to do them for GCSE and B, to get the support from SLT. Um, so hopefully some of the things that I've said might be useful ideas for them as well. If you if you've got anything, if you've got amazing take up from year nine's GCSE, um, or if you've got an amazingly supportive SLT, please do get in touch because I'd really like to have some more ideas and some more input um, to help the people who've asked me these questions. That'd be really great. 
Okay, question number four. So as I said, this is a slightly personal one, but I like it. Um, did you like the schools you were in as a teacher? Why, why not? So I, I, I was like, hmm, <laughs> how honest am I going to be? No, um, I think annoyingly, my answer is yes and no. So as with everything in life, there were elements that I loved. So, okay, just a little bit, a little bit of background. I taught in five schools in my career. Um, that's not including my PGCE. So I taught in three schools in London over the course of four years. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. So two maternity covers. So literally like my NQT year in one school, my second year in another school. My third year, I went into a department, a second in department head of German, where I stayed for two years. I then left... London, moved out of London, moved back to the Peterborough area, um, took a year out to do a master's at Nottingham University and then after I'd finished my master's I did another maternity cover uh, at the school where I went as a kid and then I started at another school where I worked, I don't know, I think it was about three or four, I think I might have been in my fourth year when I then was signed off with stress and left. Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it was that, or I might have done four years, and that was my fifth year. I kind of I've lost I've lost track. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's a bit of background. So I've got quite a lot of different experiences of different types of schools. All five of those schools were I was going to say they were mixed. They weren't. One of them was a boys' school. They were all comprehensives, all state schools, uh, non-selective. So they weren't grammar schools or anything like that. Yeah, one boys' school four mixed, uh, two academies, although they're probably all academies by now. Um, just trying to think what, what else they had in common or were different. Um, four of them were, oh no, three of them were 11 to 18. One was 13 to 18, but is now an 11 to 18. And one of them was 11 to 16, but then they were building the sixth form at the time, but I only taught 11 to 16. Okay, so that was my background with different schools. I'm not gonna name the schools. Um, and I'm not going to be specific about what I liked and disliked about each one. In general, though, I've got to say it's the people more than the schools um, that I either loved or didn't love. <laughs> um, so positives, um, as a rule, I really loved all the kids. Like there were probably like one percent of the kids that drove me insane. But 99% of the kids I always found just great fun. Like sometimes I do think I, I quite miss working with young people actually. And I see teenagers around, I'm like, oh, I did quite enjoy working with teenagers. They were a good laugh. Um, so yeah, so so that element of it, like the relationships with the kids is something I always loved. And regardless of inner city London, uh, rural Northamptonshire, let's just say that, uh, you know, <laughs> and anywhere in between you know kids are kids and they're just they're pretty great really most of the time aren't they so yeah I loved that element and in each of the schools I worked in um I met some really great people who I'm still friends with um not in, not from every single school um but yeah I'm st you know I've still got some really close friends who I met as colleagues um and I think that's really important as well um to have 
even just one or two people who you get on really well with and you can have a laugh with. I have to say the schools in London were much, I mean, I don't know, I was a bit younger, um, but they were really good for like going to the pub on a Friday and just like much more sociable. Um, but that possibly because we there was a lot of staff in their 20s and single and, you know, no family, no kids and stuff. Um, however, the flip side of that is that one of the, worst things about I'm going to say every school I worked in were certain members of staff um no actually a couple of the schools there wasn't really anybody who was particularly difficult um and sadly it was sorry I find this quite hard to talk about because actually I I suffered um in one of the schools from really quite severe bullying from my head of department so it's quite difficult to think about and talk about um so yeah it was again going back to SLT and leadership and stuff that actually um when you don't have supportive leadership and like I say I, I have one particular head of department who just bullied me she was just really nasty I mean that we taught French and German in the school and by the time I finished there and probably for most of the second year I was there she we didn't even have joint language like joint department meetings it was like me and the other German teacher would have a meeting and she and the other French teacher oh and I wasn't I wasn't teaching any French because you know <laughs> anyway and she was awful she she was really really awful um and really impacted my confidence for a very very long time um, and I was astonished um, when I then went to work in other schools that they considered me to be an outstanding teacher. And I was like, but she kept telling me that I was inadequate or or at one classic type. I mean, these are the kind these are like alarm bells, right? That you if somebody does this kind of thing, like get out as quickly as you can. Had a lesson observation, which she rated. I mean, this is back in the day when every, when people rated every single lesson observation. She rated it as satisfactory, I think, but she thought wasn't good enough or not, or inadequate or something. I can't remember. This is like when Ofsted was outstanding, good, satisfactory, and inadequate. So then she was like, well, I need to do another one. No, I think she said it was inadequate. That was it. And then she was like, well, I'm going to have to do another observation. Bring me your lesson plan before the before the lesson. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I plan the lesson, show the lesson plan. And she looks at it and goes through it with me and tweaks, you know, and says, oh, maybe you could include this. Maybe you can do this. I was like, oh, maybe she's been quite nice, but quite helpful. So I taught the lesson. She observed it. And then she goes, well, yes, that was a good lesson, as in like Ofsted good. But because I helped you with the lesson plan, I'm only going to give you satisfactory. I was like, what absolute BS, like, seriously. It was bizarre. It was so weird. And I was second in department and like she didn't ever tell me the things I was meant to do. She didn't ever communicate anything from SLT. So I would like, I started turning up to um, head of department meetings and then I was told like, you're not meant to do this. And I was just like, yeah, but nobody is, I'm head of subject and nobody is telling me the things I need to know. And then she would, oh my God, sorry, this does, it does, I could go on. I could do an entire podcast episode about how awful she was, but she would like tell me off for stuff that I didn't know that I didn't know because she hadn't told me stuff and then she'd be like why haven't you done this and I'd be like well, I don't know I was meant to do it so yeah she was horrible um and yeah I have worked with other staff who were really unsupportive um just really nasty and you know these things stick with you like I remember complaining that 
in my set so like I say I did my NQT year in one school and then went to another school for for, for my second year so I was really just NQT plus one which these days you're still ECT aren't you you're still you, I think you're doing that for two years so yeah, I was a pretty new teacher and in a new school and I remember complaining um about lack of support and one of the deputy heads called me into her office and she was like why are you expecting support for you're not on NQT and I was like okay and I think I did cry I think I actually burst into tears because I, I think I'd been I was under a lot of pressure and just feeling like really really miserable so anyway yeah so I think I've had some quite unlucky um uh situations let's put it that way um so so that's the kind of no element of what I didn't like about schools I was in as a teacher um but you know and this does kind of relate to the other questions I was talking about leadership I think a lot of whether you like a school or not has got to do with leadership um and has got to do with how good the senior leadership team is um I think that's absolutely vital um in yeah in whether you get on or not um so so yeah that's a a little a little warning to people that I think you know you can go and look around a school and it can be a beautiful building with big airy classrooms and this that and the other but if the leadership is not good um then yeah it, it, it can just be really miserable and then sometimes what happens is that you have really good leadership and then it changes and then that can be really difficult, especially if you've gotten really well with the previous leadership and then the new people come in and they're just awful. That's happened to me before. Um, and you struggle to kind of respect them, which is not a nice situation to be in, is it? OK, last question, because I've been talking for nearly 40 minutes, so you probably don't want to hear my voice anymore. Um And another one that makes me a little bit sad, but I know is going through a lot of teachers' minds at the moment. What other jobs are good for ex-teachers? Um, so I'm not really much of an expert on this. But when I was trying to think of an answer, I was thinking, okay, my situation, um, I've stayed in the world of education and I've diversified from... So when I left, I thought, God, what, what the hell am I going to do? Because I just knew I couldn't go back into the classroom again. I had already done private tuition. So when I was doing my master's degree, I did some private tuition and I knew that I enjoyed it and I knew that it was a... Um, a market out there for it and I decided that's what I was going to do and I have to say I am in an exceptionally fortunate situation in that financially I don't really need oh god this sounds awful I don't really need to worry about um whether you know we can afford for me to not be earning as much as I was as a teacher let's put it that way okay so I people I think people think oh, people think I earn loads of money I really don't um but then I only work like one or two days a week at the moment. So, yeah, so we're in a situation where um, I've been able to do this and I've been able to build up my business. And financially, it hasn't really there hasn't been a lot of pressure on me. There are people who can make a really, really good living with um, private tuition. Um, and I think that's fantastic. Obviously, you need time the really good thing about languages is I found I wasn't just doing like GCSE um coaching um I was teaching young children I was teaching adults I had this lovely group for a while a couple of lovely groups of retired people for a while separate groups 
Um, there are also local language schools. Um, so I've got a master's in teaching English as a foreign language and like TEFL qualification and experience in that. So I did a bit of that. Um, and then I've diversified into writing resources, um, obviously, and doing things, you know, a bit of sort of CPD and teacher training and um, podcasts. And I was so lucky to do the BBC Bite Size and things like that as well. And what I was thinking, like, with my own kind of post classroom work life is I've looked at what did I actually really enjoy about being a teacher as I said I've always loved the kids and I, that is one thing these days that I miss I mean I've got my own but he's very small um, and I, I do I miss working with teenagers um, not enough to like go back into the classroom but you know <laughs> um, but yeah I looked at like what what parts of the job do I really did I really enjoy and I, I have to say, I always really loved planning lessons. Um, I always dreamt of working in a school where I could plan a lesson and know that I would just be able to teach that lesson. Like, that is the, the holy grail, isn't it? That nothing, you know, no one's going to throw a chair at somebody else or there's not going to be a fight kicking off or, you know, I don't know, they're not just going to talk so much that you end up doing, like, half what you'd planned. Um, so, yeah, so I always, I always really enjoyed that element of writing resources and planning lessons which is why I've ended up going down the route of writing and publishing my own teaching resources um, which luckily people seem to think I can do quite well and people enjoy buying them and using them so you know that's that's worked well for me um, yeah so I think if if you are and I know a lot of people are in this situation at the moment where they are just getting to the end of their teaching career let's let's put it that way that people are sick to death of a lot of the difficulties that come with teaching and I think yeah you need to think about what it what is it that you really actually enjoy about teaching and how you can take that forward into another job um so like I say for me it's writing and planning resources um for other people it might be the behavior management I mean for me that was like the worst part but for a lot of people they enjoy that the sort of the psychology of learning the motivation the behavior management and that kind of thing um and again if you want to set up on your own to be a behavior consultant or something like that um if you're really lucky your local authority um or the I don't know there might be roles within academy trusts for people who are looking at behaviour, you might want to think about moving out of a kind of, you know, comprehensive secondary school into a PRU or into um, an, another situation. I mean, I don't know, prison. I don't know. Like th there are other other forms of education. If if you if you're the kind of person that gets on really really well and really enjoys. Um, working with the children whose behavior is a bit more challenging there are other routes um that you can go down that way <clears throat> um although sadly not as many as there would have been once upon a time due to uh cuts in local authority funding um so yeah so there's, there's that kind of thing or you know as i was saying i did a bit of teaching in a language school um here in england um you know summer schools those kind of things um and then there are loads of other jobs with young people. Um, if you're particularly outdoorsy, I know that there are Duke of Edinburgh schemes that run 
um, not from schools, but like, again, possibly local authorities, possibly privately run um, Duke of Edinburgh schemes, if you like working with teenagers, if you like working with younger kids, forest schools. That's where it's at, right? We go to forest school. Oh my God, I love it so much. I've genuinely thought about training <laughs> as a forest school leader because it's just so much fun. Um, but yeah, if you're that kind of outdoorsy person who loves, you know, all that all that kind of stuff, then um, retraining, you know, doing forest schools. I mean, I've got to say, I reckon none of these are going to be as well paid as teaching and teaching really isn't very well paid anyway. The other thing I was thinking as a teacher, oh my gosh, you have so many skills. So you, first of all, you have to have a degree, um, which shows that you can study to a certain level. You, the interpersonal skills that you've built up, the time management skills, the managerial skills of like dealing with a group of 30 children all the time, um, the diplomatic skills from talking to parents um, and dealing with other staff. But you know, there, there are so many skills that you have on top of whatever you learnt for your degree, that there are, there's just so many possibilities out there. Um, if you're someone, um, like the person who asked me this question, I know is very, very good on Instagram. There are, I mean, literally every single company out there has social media people these days, and you'd be shocked how much they get paid. Um, like, from the beginning, they're probably paid as much or more than a beginning teacher um, which might be a bit of a step down for you but I think as you get further into these you they can be pretty pretty well paid um, so yeah as I said my husband studied languages and he works in communications um, so yeah the, the, there are lots of possibilities out there I like I said, I'm not really an expert and I became a teacher because my entire family are teachers and I've never really understood how to do anything else um, but yeah, the, you know, the, there are a lot of possibilities out there. But my advice, my, my, one, my one main piece of advice would be look at the, the elements of teaching that you love and think about how you can either, I mean, I love working for myself now. I wouldn't want to get a job. <laughs> I like being self-employed. Um, so either how you can set up on your own and sort of forge a career path for yourself that way or looking at what other kinds of jobs include um, that kind of thing, um, the things that you love. So yeah, is it planning the lessons? Is it dealing with behaviour? Um, is it just working with young people in general? Okay, I've been talking for a very long time, um, and hopefully it's all been fairly useful and interesting for you. And hopefully for those lovely five people who asked me the questions, um, I've answered your questions in a way that has been useful and helpful to you as always I really 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 love to get some people's feedback especially if you've worked in schools where the GCSE take-ups like in the year 90 GCSE take-ups really high and how you've done it where you've got really supportive SLT and how you've gone about that or whether you're just really lucky um, people with little kids at home are you teaching them foreign languages and how you're doing it and um yeah other people's stories about really brilliant or really awful schools everybody lo loves an awful school story um and then yeah anyone who's an ex-teacher who's doing a really interesting job I'd love to hear from you as well so I am at Kate Languages on Instagram Twitter and Facebook uh you can email kate at katelanguages.co.uk 
Um, and if you could also subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it because that just helps more people know that it's out there and then hopefully this kind of thing will be useful and will be helpful for others so I will be back next week with another episode all being well um, and I hope you have a good week from then okay bye au revoir adios auf wiedersehen (laughs) 